Welcome to Mental Health News Radio. I'm your host, Kristen Sunanta-Walker. Just what are we going to discuss? The intimacy that is mental health. Let's continue to make it as comfortable as discussing brain health or heart health. This show has been on the air for several years and we have amazing co-hosts. And then we created a network of podcasters on mentalhealthnewsradionetwork.com, a place where every possible facet of mental well-being can be talked about openly. My show, after several hundred interviews, the format is this. Intimate, deep, funny, touching, sometimes uncomfortable, but always vulnerable conversations with interesting people. The goal is to have you, our listening family, many of you who have become my good friends, feel as though you are listening in on private conversations. Thank you for tuning in and becoming part of this amazing journey with me and now with our network of podcasters. Just knowing this podcast might be helping any of you realize you are not alone on this journey called being a human being makes doing this podcast worth every second. Hey everyone, Kristen Walker here, and we're back for our business of mental health show with my co-host Dave Ballenberger. Hey Dave. How you doing, Kristen? Good, 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 good. And we've got Ann Siegel back with us. We did a great show about um, doing marketing and mental health, which is, um, you know, very, can be very difficult for especially behavioral health providers, but even any company in in mental health. And today we're going to talk about social media and mental health. And um, we've got Ann Siegel back. So Ann, thanks for joining us again. Thanks for having me, Kristen. Absolutely. Now, this is a, a topic that it used to be really taboo because of HIPAA and behavioral health providers really not understanding how to use social media. And it really, you know, was the wild, wild west out there in terms of no regulations. And there's certainly a lot more um, guidelines for people to follow now. And a lot of practices have implemented those those guidelines. But there's still a lot that is, you know, is left to be desired when it comes to really um, successfully marketing yourself in the field of mental health, and that's any company that you know where mental health is their target market. So, Anne, what do you what do you see that's changed um, since you know a few years ago around that topic? Well, in general, the data and the research that we have shows that um, still few providers are content producers on social media and are perhaps more content consumers, as most of us are on social media. So we still haven't, we've, we've seen a, a greater entree into it, but we're still not seeing um, a wide adoption in terms of being, thinking of themselves as content producers. So we still have a little ways to go in that. And I think there's still a little bit of reluctance, um, particularly on the part of mental health providers to step into this space. And there's a lot of good reasons for that. And what would you say the good reasons are? Well, first of all, everyone knows about, you know, the HIPAA requirements and guidelines that are associated with that and protecting uh, uh, patient privacy. But I think the probably the greater thing that a lot of providers have noticed is, is there really a return on investment in terms of, of the time spent on social media? And we're seeing this across industry and across um, uh, different 
uh, ways that social media is being used. So ROI is still a big problem. And so when a provider who spends all day long um, touching, talking to, and managing behavioral health um, uh, activities in their organization or clinic, and then they're expected to go on and spend time on social media, after that, what's the real return on investment there? So I think we're still seeing a little bit of reluctance and maybe even a little bit of eye-opening. Oh, social media is going to be the thing that's going to you know, save my organization or save my agency or help us do this or that, when all of a sudden they realize that, oh, wait, this is just another activity that's going to take a lot of time. And what is the real right. true return on investment from social media? So I think there's been an awakening of what social media can and can't do. That's good, and that's good for any industry. Um, I know that I know that things have changed. Um, how much is Google still the content monster that it used to be? I used to call it that instead of being the cookie monster, the content monster. So I'll give you an example. We used to have someone transcribe all of our podcasts, and we would put the whole transcription up on our site, and that became costly because if you just hire a straight-up transcription company, they're going to transcribe it verbatim, word to text, which is ho a horrible read. <laughs> so we then, yeah. you know, it just does not translate well. Speech <clears throat> exactly as spoken is not the same thing as reading. So we hired someone who would go to the, you know, extreme detail. She's fantastic. Her name's Jen, and she did such a good job. She would literally make what we talked about readable, and it was phenomenal. However, um, we just, A, couldn't afford to keep doing that, and B, we weren't seeing where that was really helping get traffic to our site. Well, Google is still a content monster, and that has not changed. Um, social media, I think, though, in, in terms of how people are consuming it, I think we need to be smarter about how we do things. Um, it's important to have a social media presence for an organization because, in a sense, the content that's produced and shared out also becomes part of that, we'll call it a, an online biography or a digital biography for that organization of, of who they are. So when someone Googles, all of that relevant information is being picked up by Google. But you probably don't necessarily, in the case of a podcast or um, a video blog, for example, you don't necessarily need to summarize it word for word, but you need, do need to provide contextual elements that help Google find that search. So that's where social media really has a role for most healthcare organizations in being that digital biography. And also, we're, we're, one of the things I really think we need to talk about is this idea of dark social. So um, you can't spend time on a private group. And, I, and I'm a member of a private group, several of them, a private group in, in Lansing, Michigan, um, that has about 12 or 13,000 members. And you can't go on that group more than a couple of days when someone is sending out a message that says, hey, everybody, I'm looking for a therapist who specializes in X. And that X is, is really specific. It might be pediatrics. It might be um, PTSD and trauma related to sexual assault. It might be um, depression and anxiety. It might be postpartum. But those are all really specific things. And they're looking for that information from their peers. Now, for the most part, the providers of those services generally have not been present in those conversations because they're not members of those groups or those organizations, or they don't take the time to spend enough time on there to be part of that conversation when it's happening in real time. And 
In addition, you also have even darker social where you'll have conversation between individual people that say, hey, I'm looking for a therapist. Do you have any recommendations? So I think when we start or I'm looking for a program for my teen or I need to get, you know, some, whatever the case might be, um, you know, they're, they're looking for so, some answers and recommendations. And those answers and recommendations are being provided by their peers. So the, the knowledge of who's the best provider for whatever that is, is not coming from the provider side. It's not hanging their shingle out there and saying, hey, we're really great at this. It's coming from the from the from their peer to peer circle where other people are providing that information, and oftentimes the providers aren't part of that conversation. Yeah, that's that's true. But the idea of you know them knowing which groups to post in it's it's <laughs> it's a huge. I mean, I know that you can go on LinkedIn and you can get into groups there and it finding those places is daunting to mm. someone who already is spending eight hours a day treating patients or on top of that, they're also running a behavioral health center or some other company that works in mental health, um, you know, to go out and find those places in order to have that dark social media. And I want you to explain to people too what that means, what dark social media actually is. Well, the idea of anything dark, and we have this in a lot of different areas in, in development and software development and, and other things like that. The idea of dark is that it's not, um, it's not necessarily visible publicly. Um, if you're, it, for example, this group I'm giving you an example of is 13,000 members that are in a private closed Facebook group. Now, the only way that you can get onto this Facebook group is you have to know about it and you have to request to join and all of the posts that are in it are moderated by about six or seven individuals. So it's really a very um, a very private space that's not so if you do a public search for something you're right for a provider to find that it's going to be very difficult. However, they are finding these groups, um, and if you are if you are connected within a community to someone who's involved in social media within a community, say you have a staff member um, or someone in your organization who is responsible for outreach and engagement, um, whether it's a defined job position or whether it's simply an ad hoc thing that they take on as a role within the organization. If those folks are active, they'll be aware of those groups in the community. And, and as we talked uh, in the past, a lot of behavioral health is centered around geography. So people are going to be looking for a provider within a certain designated radius, unless the program is very highly specialized and does something, say, residential care or something like that, where they're very highly specialized and they do something that's very unique that you're not able to get anywhere else. Most of this can be by, by geography. So it's, it's, it may be a matter of finding the right people within your organization or attached to your organization, a consultant or, or someone else that you might be able to utilize in that capacity that would know about those types of things within the community. So that's how providers are going to find out about that. Now we talk, we're going to talk a little bit about ROI in this because you, you just hit the nail on the head. They spent all day treating patients and they're expected to come home, home. And I use home quite literally. They might actually be coming to their own homes at the end of their day and they'd be, they're expected to spend time on social. That is a really daunting task. So yes, it is. Yeah. That, that is, um, you know, and you know, for next step, we have a Facebook page. And I'll bet you that in the last year I've gone through it twice because we don't put anything on it. Is is that part of the problem? 
Well, there's actually a couple things. First of all, Facebook's reach and engagement has dropped precipitously, precipitously in the last year or two years to the point where um, many organizations are wondering whether they should be spending time on Facebook at all. And that's really right. what's mm-hmm. happened with a lot of with a lot of organizations. And, and, and in part, Facebook has their own problems to deal with. Um, they've got some oh, yes, major security do. breach. They have some major security breach issues. They have some major data trust issues, and they have some major business practice practice issues, which have come to light that show that they are complicit in some things. And and I, I'm sure you all know, as I do, a lot of people who have said, you know what, I'm off Facebook. I'm deleting Facebook. So, um, as a whole, Facebook, um, the both the people that are accessing Facebook and the and the organizations that are participating in it have dropped a lot. So that's the reason why, okay. for example, um, organizations are not spending as much time on Facebook because it's not really, it, it's not as worth as it, as it used to be. Now, there is one bright spot with all of Facebook, and, um, and this is uh, at least in terms of engagement and outreach, and that is groups. Facebook groups still has pretty good organic reach, and it still has... Um, it still has at least for uh, being a facilitation platform, at least it has um, uh, the group moderators, because there's humans involved in moderating that, have been relatively good about policing content that shouldn't be shown. And I, and I mean content that's fake, like that truly is fake. You know, we all know about the fake right. accounts and things like that. So a lot of those groups are keeping that stuff out. So what it's done is create this little safe space within Facebook that people say, you know what, I don't really want to leave because I have this group I'm a member of that I really feel strongly about because it's good information. And that's the only reason why I'm keeping Facebook. Many of them have even closed down their accounts or come back into, into it and rejoined these groups mm. because they only want to participate in this stuff. So that's been the only area of a bright spot for most organizations and and uh, whether they be ad hoc organizations or whether they be formal organizations with attached groups where they can facilitate um, this type of discussion within the group. Now, of course, you can't do healthcare facilitation from within a Facebook group. We all know this. But what we can do is we can offer a place where we can have peer-to-peer conversation that is within the individuals who are in the group. And then take conversation offline that relates to a client um, um, clinician relationship, right? You can take conversations offline. I think where where social media has an important role, particularly with behavioral health, though, is in the wider thinking of advocacy. So one of the things we talk about all the time is changing the conversation, the dynamic around the way that behavioral health is viewed in society. So right now it's viewed as something really negative. It's your fault. Um, You weren't strong enough or you weren't, uh, you know, um, uh, tough enough to handle that. Um, So therefore you end up depressed or you have PTSD or whatever the case might be. Whereas the folks that are involved in clinical care understand that these are brain diseases that people need help getting through and beyond to to the maximum level that they're capable of getting beyond. That's where I think that social media has a really important role because it touches so many people. So I think as organizations, we need to be asking ourselves, how are we furthering the conversation to reduce the stigma of mental illness and move where would the conversation you put, where, of mental where would, health? You know, where would you put that kind of information on social media? Well, you can do it in a lot of different ways. So uh, in a larger, if you think about a wider audience, 
Um, you could put it on a public Facebook page, which is public, although it has terrible organic reach. You could put it on Twitter, which means you can connect with a lot of other organizations. And Twitter tends to be the place where um, a lot of media and public organizations tend to interface because it is public and it is sort of uh, sharing of shorter bits of information. So Twitter is a good platform for that. You can have those conversations a little bit on LinkedIn, although at that point you're really speaking to fellow providers, right? those within the industry and the organization. So I think all of the social platforms have a place for us to put out there um, the idea that mental illness and mental health is something that is um, biologically derived and can be solved with the right treatments and therapies. So I think if we can look at it as maybe more of a responsibility of advocacy, we can do some good in that. Um, by way of example, um, and I'm going to use an example. It's not in behavioral health because I want to step away from that just for a little bit. Um, by way of example, there are a lot of physicians, and there's in particular, I follow a, a, a pediatric dermatologist, of all people, who's based in Denver. <laughs> and it's fascinating um, to follow this healthcare provider, and I, I forget exactly why I began following her, but her posts are very interesting because she doesn't talk about her patients, but she does talk about the clinical care but she also weaves in, and this is really important, I think, for clinical providers, she also weaves in the humanity of her work. So what she's doing is she's building a personal brand based around her practice so that her practice gets more widely known. And I'll, and I'll use this as, a, as an example. A lot of us are familiar with um, the pediatric physicians in Southern California that it's a family who have written a series of books. It's the Dr. Sears Parenting Library. Well, this family, and there's the father, and there's several sons and daughters who are physicians who have come out of this family. I think even the, the father might actually, the father, the parents might be retired at this point. But um, the, the family has built this dynasty of knowledge in the pediatric space, so much so that they, um, they all have very thriving practices in Southern California, but they also have this empire built around novels and products, or not novels, rather, um, 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 research and, and uh, books, you know, just published books for parents uh, and product endorsements based around their, um, their pediatric practice and their pediatric knowledge. So at a very high level, you've got physicians who are extremely well-known. And then you have physicians kind of in this mid-tier who are broadening themselves using social media. And then you have those who are just sort of dipping their toe into it. So for a behavioral health practice that has a very focused specialty, say maybe pediatrics, or eating disorders or something like that, where it's very specialized, their activity on social media can have a huge impact in creating that area or that, that um, kind of sense in a border of thought leadership around a particular subject that could even be broader than their geographic community. Hmm. Yeah, I think another thing we should probably talk about too is the negative side of social media and relationship to young people and some of the yeah. things we've seen with um, bullying um actually children committing suicide because of what's happened or what they're said about them on social media do you think we should have more controls so i'm in firm agreement that there should be a lot of controls and in particular i think our teens and our tweens are very vulnerable because their brains aren't fully developed yet now i will couch this by saying that i'm a marketing professional i am not a yeah. behavioral health professional but um but what i do know as a parent 
of uh, children in this, in this age bracket that um, it is incredibly devastating for these kids to be bullied on social media because they can't escape it anywhere. It comes home. It follows them home. Mm -hmm. And because our kids spend so much time on social media at a time when their brains are growing and developing, they're much more susceptible to the kinds of um, uh, really, I, I, I want to say even like emotionally violent um, types of interactions that can get them even into into trouble and physical violence. And you you know you think of uh, mm -hmm. trafficking and and um, and bullying that extends itself into <clears throat> someone being attacked at school for the things that may have may or may not have said online. So while I'm not a, a professional in the clinical sense, I will tell you as a social media professional, I think that parents, educators, and professionals need to look very carefully at restricting the kind of access that we give our kids, the kind of platforms that we let them on. And as parents, grandparents, caregivers, and professionals, we need to be monitoring their social media. And I don't mean, you know, periodically just poking in and saying, what are you doing on social media? I mean, um, making sure that you have access to their account at all times, that you are spending daily time following them on social media and seeing what posts that they have that you're sure that they don't have ghost accounts um, set up, right. things like that. Um, that's a whole problem. Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's a whole entertainment. We, and we've done, yeah, I've done news shows, you know, been a guest on news programs about that, and we've done whole shows on that. Um, can you explain, because a lot of mental health providers have no idea what dark social media means, and it sounds ominous. So can you explain exactly what that is? So those are all the places that you can't see publicly. Those are all the conversations on private groups, secret groups, um, between individuals and in comment threads that you can't necessarily see. So anywhere where it's not going to be available through a public search um, or through, uh, like sometimes we tell our, our clients to do a Google alert for their clinic name or their mm -hmm. name and see if they can see those things. Um, but you won't be able to see that because those are all behind these privacy walls of private groups where people are interacting with one another. And that's what I mean by the, the idea of dark social is that you're not part of that conversation, which means that as a, as a clinic or an organization from a marketing side, you, you would have to find all these groups and join them to know and be part of the conversation. But also that there may be conversations going on between individuals that you also can't see, particularly with things like Messenger. Um, and messenger apps. Right. We don't use we don't use messenger apps a lot in the United States right now, but in other countries, particularly in Asia, oh, they use, they the, use WhatsApp, yeah, the vast, like <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, even even Facebook Messenger or other other uh, messenger platforms, they use Messenger the way we use Facebook and Instagram. Mm -hmm. So we yes, spend probably ninety percent of our time on the the platform apps and 10% of our time on messenger apps, they spend 90% of their time on messenger apps and less than 10% of their time on the, on the actual platform apps. So all that conversation on the messaging side is entirely hidden. So you'll never get a chance to see it as a provider. So these are some real concerns, both from a marketing standpoint and from, you know, what if you had to do uh, reputation management? If somebody went on and said, you know, hey, I went and saw Dr. So-and-so and, you know, she was absolutely terrible. Um, you know, you, you would have no way of defending yourself because you wouldn't even understand that that conversation's been, you know, that that conversation's going on. Um, but unfortunately, Absolutely. because, because of the wideness of social media, that can be spread much wider than, than one person talking to another. 
We've seen that. I talked to um, a friend of mine, Dr. Paolo Molino in Italy, and he's seen that happen with the teachers at his school using WhatsApp, that, you know, these, these groups are set up in WhatsApp for all the parents, and the one parent starts blasting the teacher, and then all the parents jump on board with that. No, this teacher's great. No, they're not. The teacher has no idea that this is gone because they're not, this is going on because it's not part of the group. But let's take this up to, you know, a level of, let's say, you know, you're a technology company and you market to um, the mental health market. You're, and let's take it out of just even being an agency because that's a whole separate animal. But, you know, and some kind of company, a telehealth company that services mental health, you know, any kind of an organization that is servicing the mental health field because A, I'll give you an example. We had um, someone come in that, you know, wanted to, uh, do all kinds of things for us, uh, sell ads um, for the, to run across our podcast on the network, and they had no idea whatsoever how to actually sell to a mental health space. And, um, you know, they came in very pushy and very demanding, and then, you know, we ended up parting ways. But the first thing I thought in how they were trying to approach was, you have no idea how to sell to mental health. You just, you do not go into mental health with that kind of an attitude. <laughs> so in terms of how you approach mental health, utilizing social media as a vendor that is selling to that market, um, you know, what are the best platforms and how, and is it even necessary to be active in social media? Because I'll see, you know, EHR vendors, as an example, that do social media and their social media just, you know, they never get any likes or shares or anything. They're just doing it because it's something you're supposed to do, but they don't have any interaction with anyone at all on their social media. So, you know, is it necessary for those kinds of companies to utilize it or what is it that they need to do in order to have interaction well, I think it depends. There's a couple of different things. We talk about this all the time with um, with a lot of clients in this space and outside of it. The, the question really becomes is where are your customers and where do they want to be aware and where do they want to engage? And those are two different things. So um, by way of example, I'm working with an association totally unrelated to uh, mental health, but the conversation came up. Well, it looks like 57% of our audience says that they spend time on Facebook. I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm pulling on a number. It's actually a lot more than that. It was probably more like about 80 or 90%, but I don't have the actual numbers in front of me. So let's say 57% of our audience says they spend time on Facebook, but only 10% of them want us to engage them there. And so the conversation was, okay, so what do we do with this 57% that they said they spend 50, they spend all this time on Facebook, but yet they don't want to engage us there. They've specifically told us these two different metrics. So what we said was, well, Facebook may be a play for you that's simply awareness. So you spend time there, maybe you promote some posts, you sponsor some ads, that sort of thing, so that people see it, much like you would see a billboard when you're driving on the highway. No one expects you to engage with the billboard when you're driving on the highway, but you've seen it. And maybe you see it every single day as you drive by it. And then all of a sudden you realize, oh, I need whatever it is, that billboard, I'm going to remember that, right? So that becomes an awareness play, what we think of as traditional advertising. And then you talk gotcha. about this idea of, in, of engagement and you say, well, where do people want to engage with us? So then you choose the platform where you're going to get the most engagement. So you might have Facebook as a play for awareness, but you might have, by way of example, LinkedIn or 
Instagram or, you know, uh, good old fashioned email, which is not a social network, although it is very social, um, you might have the inner interaction and engagement on another platform. And that's okay. And it's not that you, it's not that you want to go away from using Facebook and, and, you know, or Instagram or any of these other platforms, but you have to pick the one where your audience's eyeballs are, first of all, because if you said, you know, hey, we never get any engagement on Facebook, we're just going to ignore Facebook. Well, the problem is, is that the people that you're trying to reach, when they go home at the end of the day, when they're not fighting the fires that they have to fight all day long, and they're actually sitting back and their their brains are more relaxed and they're sitting down and they're scrolling through their phone on social media and their eyeballs are coming across stuff. You're catching them at a time where they're not distracted by a lot of other things. And, the, you know, the comment that we got was, well, no one wants to engage or, or think about work at that time. And it, it's a, OK, they might not want to engage with you there, but they've certainly seen you there. So it becomes more of an awareness play. And that's one of the ways that you can think about these, some of these platforms where you think, well, hey, you know, we're not there. The other thing we have to think about, too, is, is who's our audience in terms of um, the age that they are? Um, what do they need? What are their big challenges? And whatever we have to solve as an organization, if we're selling it into a space, so the example, the, the telehealth example that you gave, what they probably didn't do was go out and say, what are the people that we're selling to, what do they really need? What are their big challenges? What keeps them up at night? And if they answer that question, they would discover that, oh, what, maybe what they want from us is research information or best practices or um, curate for me uh, the things that I need to hear as an organization because I don't have time to go out and search for that. Maybe what they become is a conduit for research, knowledge, and information and then in turn, they become a trusted resource for that kind of thing. So rather than right. becoming a sales, part, a sales partner, they become an education partner. And, but mm. they have to really find out from who they're trying to sell into, who they're trying to sell to, first of all, what are their big challenges? What, what, you know, what, what are their burning needs? Are they, are they staying awake at night thinking to themselves, um, you know, I've got to figure out a way to deliver better care to people that I can't necessarily touch physically in my office every day. There's only a finite amount of time that I can physically touch or be in front of somebody. Maybe telehealth is an option for me. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. That's what you have to get into their space and discover if that's a burning question. It may not be. They may say, you know what? I want to see my, you know, 50 patients a day and that's it. Or I would really like to see 20 patients a day in person and another 60, you know, some other way. So I don't necessarily have to be sitting here. Maybe I can do, maybe I could operate my practice from, you know, my late cottage, you know, there's a lot of other things you have to kind of get behind their head and say, you know, what, what's driving it and then craft the right messages and interact with them the right way. So I always say the best social media platform is the one that your audience wants to use. Mm, okay. Okay. Interesting. So how about the, you know, there are some places where you see a ton of comments, a ton of interaction back and forth, you know, in, in the comment section of things or retweets or replying to tweets. Um, Instagram is another one that people will comment on. LinkedIn also, although not always do people comment on things like that. But uh, you know, being careful as someone that, you know, let's say as an agency in doing comments back and forth, are you seeing agencies, you know, having someone on staff that literally is the one that full-time manages all social media, gets people engaged, you know, writes comments back, 
um, you know, do, does that kind of thing. I do think you need to have someone within your organization, whether it's their primary role or whether it's an adjunct role, who is responsible for outreach and engagement. And that could really involve a lot of different things. It could be community involvement and community engagement that also extends back into social media. Um, you know, if you think of a, uh, you know, an organization that deals, for example, with children, and that organization is involved in, you know, say local school districts and things like that, or involved in community events where they can get out there and get their name known, um, and they can provide a valuable service or help within the community. I think that person that's responsible for outreach and engagement should be the person that's the, the voice and the manager behind that social media. Um, it, it really is going to take a, a, a dedicated effort to do that. Now, that person's functional role might be something else. That person, person may have a functional role and maybe the outreach and engagement is a portion of what, the, they, what they do. And that's really where I see uh, a lot of organizations getting started is that someone within the organization is really out there in the community and is really working hard to do things in the community. And maybe that person's the best person to choose for that role. Mm, okay. And, and how important do you think that that you know, that that is for an agency? Because I, I have I seen some that don't do any social media whatsoever, um, and they're booming, and they do really well. They've got a great reputation. They've been around long a long time. And then I've seen others that, you know, are doing really well with their social media and others that, you know, try it, and they just, you know, it's not you know, it's not very impressive, their actual, their social media. So it's kind of across the board is from what I've seen. I think it takes, uh, well, first of all, it takes strategic thinking. You have to ask yourself what your goal is with your social media, what it is that you want to do. And you have to, you have to identify the specific results that you're looking for. So um, in the organizations that have had a long history and have been very well established and have that reputation, they have all of that built up through their activities in the community. So everybody knows them or they sponsor specific things so people are more aware of them. People coming into the community become aware of them. But they have this sort of harnessed reputation. A newer organization that maybe doesn't have that but has, you know, I mean, we're talking quality. Let's say the organizations are equally qualified to do what it is that they do. Um, and, and they're, you know, the one isn't better than the other, then the organization that's newer coming into the market and maybe offering a specialty that the other one doesn't, they're going to have to spend comparatively more time building up that trust and awareness and association with the positive work that they're doing. So by, you know, natural association, we understand that that's marketing, right? That's where we have to spend our time. And, um, and I think social media is a very, very important play for a lot of organizations. It's not going to if, you're, if you can't do social well, it's probably better to focus on what you can do well. So by way of example, if Facebook doesn't seem to be working for you, but something else is, focus your efforts in that direction. So let's say Facebook isn't working for your organization. You might still have a presence there and maintain it on a fairly you know, low to moderate level, but you might spend more time, for instance, on you know, Instagram, showing the work that your team is doing in the community with community organizations. And maybe that's the way that you build up that reputation and being part of the community that you're in and, you know, getting involved in the causes and things that expose you to the people who are going to, um, uh, you know, to, to need your service, you know, potentially be, you know, a, a need your services. So if you're, if you're mm -hmm. serving, and I want to go back to, you know, let's say you're serving college students, 
um, you have to be where they are on the platforms that they're on. Um, and you have to be in a space where they can feel comfortable. And I, I read something very interesting, uh, I don't know, a week or so ago, um, that said that, that younger people um, actually feel more comfortable in an online space, even though the data and the information that they're sharing is being shared more widely, they feel more comfortable behind the screen. And so their impression mm -hmm. is not to be afraid of whether their information is getting out there, like whether Facebook knows that they're suffering from depression, but that they feel uncomfortable interacting with someone face-to-face -face in that initial engagement. So I found that very interesting that they may actually, the, the perception of sort of fear is actually in a different place. Interesting. How about um, organizations that, you know, use, let's say, a podcast? Uh, and they, you know, or webcasts um, on YouTube or, you know, just have some kind of engagement where they, where, you know, their potential patients or clients can see, see who's running it, you know, get a, a physical, you know, face-to-face -face in terms of they're watching something. Um, how, how do you see those things working in a you know, mental health capacity? Well, I think video always has really significant impact. And what we're seeing now is rather than spending a lot of time posting longer form video on a platform like Instagram or Facebook, what we're seeing is um, a lot of organizations going back to posting longer form video content on YouTube. Because of course, YouTube at its heart is really a search engine. It's a search engine for video content, but it's right. still a search engine. So if someone's searching for something, YouTube is likely to come up as a search result because it is relevant. And of course, people like to see what's going on, right? They like to see the people that they're talking to and interacting with. So YouTube's always been a really, a really good play. And YouTube's introduced some new features that make it a little bit easier to do uh, live video and to be content creators, like through their creator studio. So I think there's some positives about um, organizations using YouTube to get out there and sharing that longer form content. What we know about Facebook video, unlike about two years ago, where you could publish almost anything on a Facebook video, quite literally for a minute and get 4,000 viewers, you can't really do that anymore. It just doesn't work. No. So yeah. it, a lot of people are dropping off those videos and a lot of organizations are closing their their Facebook video content in favor of putting it on a video platform like YouTube. So, and, and of course, if you take a look at what's happening with YouTube, which is owned by Google and Facebook, which is owned by Facebook, um, you know, there's a bit of a rivalry there. So the two platforms are sort of competing with one another for feature sets. So, um, so I think that people are consuming longer form video on YouTube and it's a good place to be. Um, so as for podcasts, podcasts have always sustained themselves. Um, you know, we still listen to radio even though radio has right. been around for more than a hundred years, all of us still listen to the radio in part because radio allows us to listen when we can't, when we have to be doing other things like driving in our cars or um, working in the garden or, you know, walking somewhere. We're used to interacting with and podcasts have kind of filled that gap. They've sort of filled that radio space for us. So I think podcasts right. are a good play. YouTube's a good play. Hmm. Interesting. And then what I've noticed, too, in terms of people that are doing YouTube, people that are doing podcasts, I, I noticed that that audio piece, that's a whole other universe than social media. And those two don't tend to translate um, 
with each other. So the number of, of engagements you may get about posting a video or a podcast on your social media, because they're completely separate universes, like people that do social media aren't always also podcast users. So there's not a ton of engagement um, in that arena, but where you want to look for your engagement is in the number of listens that you have or the number of views that you have on YouTube and not necessarily, they don't necessarily cross pollinate. Have you noticed that also? Yeah, you're not likely to get a lot of comments on, on those other platforms for sure. You're going to, people are right. even uh, interacting with those, those uh, different platforms in a different way. Hmm. Well, okay, last words on, and, and Dave, I've been hogging this whole thing because I'm steeped in this, but what are, what are you, what questions might you have about <laughs> social media and mental health? <laughs> I, I think any question I had, Kristen, you covered. Um, no, my biggest concern, and I, and I expressed it, was about social media and relationship to young people um, and their parents. We say that parents should do something, but a lot of parents, they don't know how to do it. I mean, they don't know how to track what their kids are doing on social media. And they don't go in and ask them because, you know, you got the old teenager in your face about my business. Well, that and, that um, and you know, your kids are smarter than, the kids are smarter than their parents when it comes to yeah, social media. Yeah, I mean, my, so, my, so my grandson like, can outdo me in a minute. Well, but yeah. Is, I think... Um, is is of great concern because um you know i know my daughter finally had to limit how much the boys could be on their computers period um and i wonder how many parents do that um no, Dave, you know because they, think... they weren't doing anything else so their social development becomes real stymied in terms of just being able to talk to people and to be able to respond to people in words and not hiding kind of behind a computer screen and putting down what you think with no consequence. Yeah, that's, you know, it's really interesting that you bring that up, Dave. And I, I think schools are beginning to address this. And I think technology is actually going to save us here, um, as it always does in the end. They, it creates the problem and then it solves the problem. So um, there's obviously a lot of tech out there that allows us to control what our kids see and do on different applications on, with different interactions in social media. It allows us to pause their internet. Um, you know, I have, I have a device, an app on my phone that allows me to pause every device in my house independently of one another. So I can pause the different devices. And as my kids pick up different things, I can pause those too. Um, but I, and it also helps monitor content as well. So I think tech is going to save us in terms of what our kids are interacting with. But I am really concerned that a lot of the young people that are out there that we interact with on an ongoing basis, a lot of them do feel more comfortable behind the screen. And I think this has implications mm -hmm. for us. I think this has implications for us as um, as practitioners, um, in part because um, if if you have somebody who's much more comfortable interacting behind a screen, they may not respond as well to a particular type of treatment or therapy because they're not used to interacting that way. So I think providers. I, yeah. I think again, I think tech is going to help us here. I think um, there are obviously a ton of of behavioral health apps out there that do allow you to interact with a therapist in a private one-to-one -one way that give you some control and support. And I think, so I think tech is going to save us all, even though it created the problem in the first place. Yeah. And I think Great. an example is, um, you know, people will send you emails 
with all this negative stuff in it, and you're this and you're that, your company's this and that. Well, then when you get them on the phone or you sit down and you're looking eyeball to eyeball, none of that stuff's true anymore. Um, you know, they were mad, and then the, the email allows them to do that. And I think, um, you know, that happens uh, a lot of times, and maybe technology will save us, but you're right. In terms of the clinical side of this thing with treatment, if I'm more comfortable behind a screen, I'm going to have a hard time talking to a therapist. Yeah, and I think when, especially when you look at how social media and maybe our use of technology is creating some of the problems that we're seeing in behavioral health right now, um, I think uh, tech is going to have to work to help solve those problems. And I think, fortunately, I think there are a lot of really, really bright people who are creating that kind of software and that technology to allow um, providers to be able to interact in that way. And, you know, I, I'm encouraged by that because I think that that's the way a lot of our kids are going to interact with it. They don't even think anything of it. Tech is sort of an extension of themselves. And they don't even yeah, think anything right. of it. But um, so I, I think tech's gonna tech will help us in that way. Yeah, I agree. Agreed. Agreed. I didn't grow up with technology. Well, and it's 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 a necessary. A last question for you, Anne, is how imperative is it for an organization? And I'm and I'm I mean any organization, but let's you know since this is related to the mental health field. How imperative is it for any organization in mental health to have some kind of social media and what platforms would be the most suggested? Well, I'm going to caution this and say that it's only imperative that it meets with your organization's strategic goals. Because if you can't maintain it and do it well and it doesn't align with your strategic goals, then I suggest that you don't do it. That being said, if you have identify that you want to do it as an organization, that you're committed to doing it, you're committed to doing it well, and you feel that it can further your strategic goals, broaden your awareness in your communities, that sort of thing. And I suggest that you pick a couple of platforms that your audience spends their time on and try to limit, like uh, start smaller and then broaden out from there. Don't try to tackle all of the platforms. Stay on ones that you know that you can execute well. Um, your audience is really going to depend on talking with the folks in your, who are already currently interacting with your organization, whether they be parents or patients themselves. Um, you want to talk with the folks who are really within your organization right now and say, where would you interact with us? Would you feel comfortable interacting with us this way? Where would you spend your time? That sort of thing. So you want to really find out the motivation from the people that you already engage with, assuming you want people just like them. Um, find out where they are, and then try to replicate that with a wider audience on the outside. So there's no one good platform. Um, you know, okay. you, you have to you have to go with where people are. If you serve a um, a young population of college students, you're probably not going to find that platform on Facebook because they're not there. Right. Um, they're going to be on other. They're going to be on other. They're going to be on Snapchat or WhatsApp or. They're going to be um, on things you know, that, that I don't even want to know about. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> right. Yeah. And they're they're going to be. Yeah. And there are some other. But but it, you know they're going to be on Instagram, uh, which is very popular among young people. But at the same time, you even have gender differences. So you don't have a lot of. Um, you you might ha- not have, for example, I'll use an example, Pinterest. You're not going to have a lot of young men interacting with you on Pinterest. But if you want to put out messaging <laughs> out there, 
um, you're you're going to find maybe a maybe a, a more willing audience of of younger women on on Pinterest. And I, and I say younger women. I'm saying if you're over the age of 25, right? Under the age of 25, they look at you like Pinterest. Gosh, I just never really use that. So I think even there's even gender and age differences within each of those platforms. So the most important platform to be on is the one where the people that you want to engage with are at. And the most important platform to choose is based on the strategic goals of your organization. Gotcha. Okay. Well, and thank you so much. This is fantastic. And um, I know our listeners are going to get a lot out of this. So I really appreciate you coming back on again. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. And tell well, our thank listeners you, where they can, yeah, tell our listeners, um, lastly, where they can find out more about you because some of them may want to hire you. <laughs> so you can find me at marketingacuity.com. That's marketingacuity.com. All right. Thanks, Dave, for coming back on. And thank you to our listeners for another edition of The Business of Mental Health on Mental Health News Radio. Without good intentions, I heat up and act on my emotions. Thanks so much for listening to Mental Health News Radio. Our podcast can be found on iTunes, Stitcher, and hundreds of other podcast apps. Or you can visit our website at mentalhealthnewsradio.com. If you have a question or would like to be a guest, become a podcaster on our network, or join the amazing organizations that help keep us on the air, please email us at info at mhnrnetwork.com. Get ready for that special goodbye from our resident therapy dog, Miles, and a special thanks to Emily Sohn for letting us use her incredible song, Cordial, for our podcast music. Listen to the full song on SoundCloud at emily.sonne. Don't be surprised when I don't hate on you. After all we promised, we'd be cordial. Sometimes in you, I can fight it. Good boy.